Asalaamu Alaikum everyone, my name is uh, Brother Adil Chowdhury and welcome to another episode of the Ilmfeed podcast and today I'm joined with uh, beloved Sheikh Bilal Ismail so Asalaamu Alaikum Sheikh Wa Alaikum Asalaam wa Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuh Hiyakallah Dr. Adil Jazakallah Khair Barakallah Fiq How are you doing today? All well, all well, alhamdulillah and uh, Jazakallah Khair to Ilmfeed for inviting us Barakallah Fiq Barakallah Fiq Jazakallah Khair It's a real honour and a pleasure to have you here I know you're here for a short time so uh, thank you so much for making time to be here with us and all the viewers uh, watching online. Fantastic. So for today's conversation, I wanted to touch upon a few topics. But firstly, from your accent, looks like you're from South Africa. Yes, definitely. South Africa. You say East, West, South Africa is best. (laughs) SubhanAllah. So tell me a little bit about South Africa and the Muslim history there. Because I understand the community there is very different to the Muslim community here. Tell me a bit more about that and the history. Khair, inshallah. Uh, very different, uh, Allahu alam, but uh, we definitely have a long history, a long history in South Africa. Uh, Islam, the Muslims in South Africa, now they've been there for about 350 years. Whereas in the UK, most Muslims, it's maybe their parents or maybe themselves, you know, who've come from the East, come from Pakistan or India or Bangladesh, maybe in the 70s, 80s. Whereas, as I said, South Africa, 350 years plus, subhanAllah, Subhanallah. So we're talking about in the uh, 17th century, 1650s, around that period, you had uh, the Dutch who were colonizing Indonesia. Colonizing Indonesia, and so many of the Umara, many of the leaders, many of the Mujahideen, many of the princes that they were fighting against, who stood up and uh, you know lifted up their arms in the face of these uh, colonizers. What happened was the Dutch captured these people and exiled them to South Africa, and so these were ulama and princes and stuff so they were exiled to south africa and uh, so that was the beginning of islam in south africa it was these it were these uh, these prisoners we had for example the famous island upon which nelson mandela was jailed famous robin island uh, just off cape town there's almost no tourist who comes to cape town except that you know they must go to robin island and visit to visit his jail cell subhanallah small tiny jail he lived there for years nonetheless on that same island you have some of the graves of these uh, early exiles who were exiled by the by the dutch to robin island and cape town Naam. so rich history so subhanallah so those hundreds of years how many generations does that does that sort of account to <sighs> we're talking, talking about maybe <laughs> between uh, 8 and 10 generations or more subhanallah right? uh, that's why you find like in cape town many muslims with surnames like charles uh, west uh, surnames that you might not necessarily link to the person being muslim but this is because of that history there. There was intermarrying. There were some of these princes and some of these ulama who were exiled. Some of them even wrote down the Quran from memory. And that copy of the Quran is found, you know, up till today in uh, in one of the museums there in South Africa. In Awal Masjid, you go Awal Masjid. Awal Masjid meaning the first masjid in South Africa. And uh, you find a copy of the Quran there. Alhamdulillah. And so very, very rich history. This was the Indonesians. We call them in South Africa the Malays. So it's a mix between Indonesians, uh, Malaysians, people from Sumatra, from Java. They were all the ones who had settled, especially in Cape Town. So you find the Muslims in Cape Town generally Malay and their Shafi'i followers. Whereas much, much later in the 1800s, when the British now controlled South Africa, so in the early days, you had the Dutch controlling South Africa, Dutch controlling Cape Town. So because they were also in control of Indonesia, they took the political prisoners from Indonesia and sent them to the other colony, which was the Cape Colony. Fast forward, you had the British, they're the new colonizer now. And so they have India under their control. And so they required people to work on the fields, sugarcane. They wanted businessmen to come and move into uh, South Africa to serve the indentured laborers who were working on the fields. And so that's when you had many of our forefathers who came from India and they settled in South Africa. SubhanAllah, it's really, really fascinating. And um Coming back to today, what does the Muslim community look like in terms of the social strata of South Africa? Very, very cosmopolitan. Very cosmopolitan. Uh, like a major difference between us and maybe you people here in the UK. It's common in the UK to find a masjid where it is said this is 
the Pakistani Masjid. Or that one there is the Gujarati Masjid. Or this one here is the Somali Masjid. Or the Ethiopian Masjid. Or the Bengali Masjid, MashaAllah. Whereas South Africa... Not like that, you know, the, the massage is not broken down based upon the ethnic divide or the country that you originally came from. I mean, uh, I only went to India after I started teaching for the al Institute. My uh, uh, parents and stuff like this, there was no. I, my my, my great-grandfather, great-grandfather had come from India. This is probably about a hundred years ago. My grandfather born in South Africa. And during that time, there was no WhatsApp and, you know, you will pick up the phone and you're speaking to auntie and speaking to uncle and we're going back home. There was no this going back home type of mentality. Nobody was getting married to a girl from back home. or Home is, home is South Africa. So we, alhamdulillah, in South Africa, we don't have this, uh, you know, this uh, identity crisis. Am I South African? I am an Indian. Uh, we left India before there was partition between India and Pakistan or anything like that. And so we South African. We would at times, you know, talk about maybe somebody who recently has come from Somalia. And so we call them the foreigners. Mm -hmm. Somebody who said, but didn't your forefathers... Yeah, but that's a hundred years ago. I mean, we, you know, our, our, our blood is all South African now. So that's, that's like one difference between uh, the Muslim community in South Africa and maybe the Muslim community in, in the UK. We have a much more mature community, much older community. The institutions are much stronger. They've been around for a long period of time. You had Muslims in the anti-apartheid struggle. The first... Justice Minister in Nelson Mandela's government was a Muslim, uh, Dalla Omar. The first uh, education minister was a Muslim, uh, Ahmed Katrada. He passed away recently. He was in jail with Nelson Mandela for years, years on end, for decades on end. And so the Muslims, mashallah, walking anywhere in South Africa, you can walk with your thobe, sisters in hijab, in niqab, no issues at all this Islamophobia or whatever, well, alhamdulillah, uh, to a large extent, you can say it's, it's, it's not even present in South Africa. Masajid and Adhan and your Eid and your Udhiya, complete freedom, alhamdulillah, complete freedom doesn't mean, mashallah, let me buy a ticket and move to South Africa now. You know, it's the place to be. No, no, no. We obviously have our issues and our problems and all of that, like all other communities. Subhanallah. So you touched upon two really, really interesting points that I want to pick up on. One around sort of an identity crisis and mm. something that isn't quite the case or wasn't quite the case for yourself in South Africa, having been through so many generations there. Obviously, the Muslim communities in the UK are a lot more or a lot newer, more recent. Mm. So from my community, you might have second, third generation uh, British Bangladeshis or, or others from the subcontinent. And... Often it's spoken about that same identity crisis. Where is home? Is home Bangladesh, India, Pakistan or, or yeah. Somalia, wherever? Or is home here? What advice do you have for young people tussling with that uh, challenge? Allah Mustan. One negative that that breeds is complacency. And you find this very clear in, unfortunately, many of the Arab communities in the West, be it Canada, be it Australia, maybe even here the same. Maybe not so much today, but especially the previous generation, I'm going to go back home. We're here just to work. Uh, I will be buried back in Lebanon or in this country or in that country, whichever country it's going to be. Whereas in South Africa, when the Muslims came, there was no phone call. There was no contact with that outside world. Also, we were under apartheid. So you didn't really have a link with the outside world, even if you wanted to. And so that positive that that led to was that we built our masajid. You made sure that uh, your kids went to madrasa. You made sure that whether it be some maulana from India that you imported or whatever, but somebody had come, somebody was teaching the kids, they went to madrasa. So institutions were born and built from an early, early stage. Whereas when you have that complacency, we're going to go back home. This is not where we're going to die. This is not the place where we're going to build and stuff like that. So then you have one foot in the other place. What happens? You eventually reach old age and you are still here. Your kids, you've almost lost them. Daughter's wearing mini skirts because she's with John and she's with Janet and she's with this one and that one, etc., etc. Allah Mustan. And, and, and as I said, unfortunately, many of those communities, people have stepped out of Islam much, much faster. Because of that identity crisis, I'm going back home, I'm this, that, etc. They were building back in home. 
there's a documentary that the BBC has done on a town in Pakistan. And they say that this town is the town of palaces and uh, palatial homes. You know, mansions. This house here belongs to this buyer and that buyer and this uncle, that uncle, etc. Where are they? It's all empty. This one lives in Canada, in Australia, in Denmark. So these people have gone there. Some of them were factory workers. They're working so hard there. They eventually had kids. Kids don't want to go back to that village in Pakistan, even though the father has built a palace. No, he's gotten married in Denmark, gotten married in London. He's got kids. That's a different generation, different world they're living in. And so subhanAllah, that village there, this uncle saved up his whole life, built up the palaces. Nobody to live in it. Allah musta'ana. SubhanAllah. And um, you mentioned famous Muslims in South African history mm. that were involved in social justice. And now, uh, at least in today's uh, Western world, we are seeing Muslims take an active role in social justice or social impact projects, for example, in London around Grenfell Tower or even in, in the political sphere. Um, where do you see that going in countries like the US or the UK? And um, what advice would you have to Muslims that want to be active role models in the community, but also serve the wider community, not just the Muslims in their community? Try it. Uh... Many of those Muslims in South Africa during apartheid who stood up for justice and fought against the uh, apartheid government, uh, many locked up, went to prison. Many were, some were martyred. You had Abdullah Harun, Imam in Cape Town, he was martyred. You had uh, uh, Timol also martyred. Many, many, many others. Uh, even though you had those activists with the anti-apartheid movement, the ANC and others, on the other hand, you had many others who stood with the status quo. And up till today in South Africa, you have this bit of tension between those who are like, you know, the activists and in the political sphere. And you have the ulama on the other side. And so subhanAllah, and we see the same, you know, in many of the Western countries today. Same story in South Africa. The wheels of change, they move very, very slowly, you know especially amongst ulama and du'at, because the mindset is built upon the past, you know, and it's very easy to just stick with the status quo. It's the lesser of two evils and stuff like that. So up till today, you have that tension that where were you, O ulama? You were with the apartheid government. You know, you were in bed with them for your own masalih and for your own benefits. You were not looking at the greater benefit of the Muslims and the greater benefit of the country. So you have that tension up till today. Obviously, we're not generalizing. You had ulama, du'at, etc. who did stand against the apartheid government and stuff like that. And so there's no complete uh, half and half type of uh, uh, dichotomy. But today in the West, you do find because of the social justice warriors of today and uh, the causes, the alliances with some that, you know, might bring up a lot of question marks. Uh, there's a book that was released recently, very good book, Sacred Activism, brother from the, from the States, an imam. He put together this book, he just released it recently, Sacred Activism, where he talks about he was part and parcel of uh, an activist group and he's been an activist for, for years on end. He says, but I'm noticing I was in this group and uh, these people who align themselves with Islam and Muslim and stuff like this here, but they, many of them would be the first against Sharia. They would be the first against, you know, many things that we regard sacred as Muslims. So what kind of activism is this? Where's the sacred activism? So that's why I put that book together. And he talked about some of the causes that they are standing for and some of the people that they are aligning with go completely against Islam. So what's going on here? So he puts together this book. I haven't uh, gone through the book, but uh, there's a good podcast with him where he goes through the subject and stuff like this. And he's also putting together a course on activism from an Islamic point of view. Uh, Wallahu alam. SubhanAllah. And um, just thinking back to some projects and things that I do know of in the UK, would it be fair to say that, yes, there are a lot of Muslims that are very active, but we just need to make sure that our Islam isn't just a slogan or a piece of clothing that we wear when we're speaking to the media, but something that really drives everything we do. Uh, would that be fair to say? Inshallah. No doubt. Okay, barakallahu feek. So back to yourself, Sheikh. Growing up in South Africa, how did you go from, 
young uh, Bilal uh, Ismail to Sheikh Bilal Ismail, uh, international speaker, teacher, and uh, uh, everything else that you do? Uh, well, alhamdulillah, parents, mashallah. My mother uh, took an active role in our upbringing. I remember days when the, we call it, you know, the Jamaat Khana, uh, the Musalla down the road, uh, right? Go to the Musalla, make sure every Salah, you know, you go there. Sometimes you don't want to go, go to the father and say to him, you know what, speak to her, we don't want to go. Uh, you just go to the, you go. Take your little brother and you go. So Alhamdulillah, uh, my mother, she played a very active role. She comes from also a religious family. Her mother was an apa, was a muallima. Her grandfather was uh, was a maulana. And so that that was strong from that side there, alhamdulillah. And uh, the community I grew up in, many Muslims in that community, very close-knit community, even though, just like the UK, we have our politics. You have the almost every town in South Africa, Durban, Johannesburg especially, you have two masajid. So you have the Brailvis with one masjid and you have the Tablighis with another masjid. That's like standard procedure, you know, uh, in many of those towns. This is obviously them bringing the baggage of India, importing the baggage of India into South Africa. And Allah Mustan. And uh, so mother made sure that we went and studied and stuff like this, went to madrasa, went to school. And then I eventually joined the Hibs uh, school. And so, alhamdulillah, before we graduated from school, we had memorized the Noble Qur'an. And uh, then we went to college uh, studying computer science, uh, Microsoft certified systems engineer and all of these funny things. Was really not interested in it. Absolutely not interested in it. I remember in those days, people used to say that the whole ummah was studying the Microsoft certified <laughs> MC, what was it called? Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer, MCSE, MCSE. And then you had N+, Network+, and A+, and all of these things here. We did all of that. Absolutely not interested in it in the least, but Allah mustan. But while doing all of that, uh, subhanAllah, uh, I had been to a, if you want to talk about orientation, uh, to a Barelvi Madrasa. So I did my hivs in this Barelvi Madrasa, but my Ustad, he had studied in a Diobandi Madrasa in India. So he had like, you know, the best of both worlds. You know, he understood where they come from and stuff, even though the Madrasa he's teaching at was Brailvi Madrasa. As for the family background and stuff like this, uh, then they come from a, a Diobandi, uh, Tablighi background. So we were like, you know, fish out of water uh, here in this Brailvi Madrasa. And sometimes you would find, you know, some muallima or the teacher making fun of the Tablighi and the Brailvi. You know, these side jokes and banter that they might uh, crack and stuff. Nonetheless, fast forward. Every year, our Ustad would send us, you going to make Tarawi in this masjid, you going to that masjid, you going to that masjid. So every year, I would go to this uh, Brailvi Masjid and do the Tarawi there. And one year, this is what lit that spark and changed our direction. One day I'm there, and the first of uh, Ramadan, another Hufaz, another Hafiz who was supposed to be there, and he's from the Diobandi Masjid, he seems to be absent. First of Tarawi, we're looking around, where's this guy? He's not here. So myself, I read half, and my friend read the other half, and we were missing this guy. Maybe tomorrow he'll come, maybe something happened. Phone him up. Sheikh, what's going on? He says, no, I, I was there last night and when they were looking for the moon, moon wasn't sighted. So obviously there was no Taraweeh. But the Imam told me that, you know what, uh, I have some objection with regards to you making Taraweeh here. Some of my Musallis will not pray behind you because you generally pray in the Tablighi Masjid. Your orientation is of the Diobandi Tablighi side. So what do I do, Maulana? Uh, you know, best if maybe you don't perform Taraweeh here. Oh, okay. Maulana didn't inform us about that. And so we go there and it's the same story. They said, no, we're getting a replacement. Two, three, four, five nights going now. There's no replacement. We're in the month of Ramadan. Every day I prepare my preparation for Taraweeh and the guy, he prepares his. And then we have to cover up for this other guy. After about a few days, then they say to us, you know what? Uh, uh, we, we're getting a replacement. After a few nights going on like this, Mushkila, at least tell us. You read 10 rakahs, you did 10 rakahs, then we know what's going on. But waiting every night. So one night I stood up. I was in school. I was in like in, in South Africa. We have grade 1 to grade 12. That's just schooling uh, grades. I might have been in grade 10 
so I stood up after Tarawi. I said, we are guests here. Every year we come here for Tarawi and we've never experienced any problem. But this year, this year, this brother was told not to perform here because he performs his salah in a tablighi masjid. Today is Jumu'ah. I was at the Diobandi Masjid. Maybe tomorrow I will also not be allowed in this masjid. So we need to sort this thing out. And so then it was hoo ha 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 ha. Then eventually they said, okay, call the brother back. Call him back. He can make the rawi here. We contacted him. He says, brother, I already found another masjid. I'm not coming back. So now we're back to square one. What do we do now? He said, well, in that case, you read 10, you read 10. Khalas. No argument now. We're both reading 10 rakas. And so we continue <coughs> we're reading 10 rakas. Then some other people heard about the issues and problems that were going on in this masjid. So these guys come to the masjid and they say, well, what's going on here? We don't want this guy. He's not one of us. I studied in the Barelvi Masjid. I became Hafiz in that Barelvi uh, Madrasa. And my Ustad would send us to the Barelvi Masjid to make the Tarawi. But these guys are like, no, no, he's not one of us. He's not one of us. So they made a big hoo-ha in the masjid. After a few days, the trustees of the masjid, they called me in front of everybody. I'm in school. My parents don't even know what's going on here. My father said, please just don't involve me in all of these things here and stuff. Allah Mustad. And so they called me in front of the whole masjid. You know, Jazakallah Khair, Hafizab, and Dida Da. But we don't need your services any longer. Because these guys put pressure on them and says, Take him out, we'll get you a replacement. I was removed. I went every night for Taraweeh, even though I was removed. They said, you can come and pray, but you, you cannot lead. No problem. They had three Hufas to take my place. Each one of them knew almost nothing. One guy after Surah Al-Fatiha, correcting him, he's not reading anything. Allahu Akbar, he goes into Ruku. Because they're waiting for a replacement. These guys told him, we're getting you a replacement. Temporary, they had three guys. After a few, maybe a week, there's no replacement coming in the middle of Ramadan. Where are you going to find a half is going to come now? Then the trustees call me and they say, please come back and lead the taraweeh. I say, subhanAllah, you guys are playing ball here. You know, like soccer, kicking up and down. First you tell that guy, go. Then you tell him, come back. Then you tell me, go. Now you tell me, come back. Wallahi, Sheikh, not our fault. Wallahi, Hafiz, not our fault. These people said X, Y, Z. I said, they said, you don't believe in the miraj of the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I said, subhanAllah, mashallah. I mean, technically, if I didn't believe in the miraj of the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I'm out of the fall of Islam. Subhanallah, asra bi abdihi layla min al-masjid al-haram, etc. Right? And uh, so now you're willing to take me back. You haven't even asked me whether it's true, whether it's false. You haven't even ascertained whether it's true. Maybe it's true. And now you want me to come back. So I said, no. Some friends, after a few days, they said, no, please go back, please go back. So we went back and we finished, you know, the taraweeh, alhamdulillah. But that sparked, why do they have these differences? The Barelbis and the Diobandi Tablighis, both of them are from India. Both of them are from Pakistan. Both of them are from the Ahnaf. Both of them tie their hands below the navel. None of them make Raful Yadin. Why this animosity? Why this issue? Why in almost every town in South Africa, we have two Masajid, Barelbis and Tablighis? Why all of this here? So that got me started that ignited this you know looking into all of these things and that was the beginning of that of that journey why the differences why the issues why the problems and then eventually uh, a friend of a cousin of mine he met up with an american african-american brother who was in south africa and this guy went back and he started to send my cousin books of dar salam and this one and that one etc and so my cousin's thinking began to change asking different questions and i used to try to argue with him and debate with him with books whatever i had and then eventually when we went to college had access to the internet and researching and dada all of that and then we decided, you know what, we have to go to Medina and study there, inshallah. And the rest is history, walhamdulillah. SubhanAllah. And uh, you mentioned a bit about the conflict and challenges between diverse groups within the Muslim community. Now, uh, the UK and many countries in the West, uh, we have very diverse communities of Muslims from different orientations or ideologies, um, all inhabiting the same space. Mm. And what advice would you give for those communities or people within that sphere to... Uh, maintain a decorum or work together despite differences um, without the kind of conflict that you've mentioned in, in your own story? No, Allah understand. Mushkila is that the, you know, the language, the discourse, unfortunately, is so low. It's gotten so low. And sometimes we have the liberty to fight with one another. Sometimes we have the freedom and the liberty. That's why we abuse it. And then we get into all of these things. We find that uh, Sheikh Shadi Suleiman from... Uh, 
from Australia, he mentions that we in Australia, maybe 10, 15 years ago, we were just like you people in South Africa. You know, we had the liberty to do all of this here. But eventually today when Islamophobia has risen, when the Muslims, no matter who you are, you are a target, this, a positive that came out of this is that we had to band together. We had to come together. We had to forget those secondary differences, maybe even some primary differences that we have between ourselves. But for the greater benefit, you know, we had to close ranks. And so Allah Mustan, either we use our aql, we use our aql and we are smart and we close ranks in matters where we are able to. And if we don't do that, then we will be forced. When the tough times come upon us, then we will be forced to close ranks. So shouldn't we close ranks and join together, cooperate, have ta'awun, etc. Decrease, you know, the level of animosity. Shouldn't we do that before the times get tough, before the fire starts? Allahumma sallam. Subhanallah. Barakallahu feek for that uh, hugely insightful sort of reminder to myself and, and the rest of the community or communities uh, facing these challenges. Um, you mentioned before that you're working with Al-Kawthar. Um, tell me a bit about the projects that you're involved with today. Khair, inshallah. Uh, so after I graduated from Medina University, and alhamdulillah, uh, you know, that's another story. We had gone to Medina University and I made contact with Sheikh Yasir Qadi, Sheikh Tawfiq Chaudhry over the internet. Never met them before. Told them I want to study and stuff. Went there, met with them. Uh, they assisted in getting accepted in uh, the application process and stuff. So I had gone there. And even though I was studying this computer stuff, uh, but I realized I, I need to go and study. And so imagine telling your father after spending so much of money on these computer courses, you know what, I, I want to go to Medina and study. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala willed and we eventually went, did the interview and Saudi administration, mashallah, you know, leaves a lot to be desired. And so after we did the interview in like November, came back to South Africa making dua, Allah, please let us be accepted. And uh, and around June, July, I was told by a brother that the mashayikh from Saudi are in South Africa and they are doing interviews for students. I said, but I've already gone there and I did an interview there. You know, why should I go and do another interview? He says, well, you know what, maybe the guy was eating his lunch <laughs> and, you know, his application form went into the bin or something <laughs> like this. So you'd rather come and do another application. So we drove all the way to Johannesburg, sat there to do another application with the sheikh, told him, absolutely no Arabic I knew. Huwa hada kitabun mafi. Didn't know any of that, even though one memorized the Noble Quran. And so told him that, you know what, uh, we've already been there and done an application. So he says, what's your name? So he goes through the names there, Bilal Ismail, mashallah, you accept it. And subhanAllah, and then we went to the Saudi embassy and the documents were there and stuff like that. Uh, so that was uh, getting accepted. We were there for six years, alhamdulillah, and then came back to South Africa. By that time, Sheikh Tawfiq Chaudhry had started the Al-Kothar Institute in Australia, delivering weekend intensive Islamic courses in many cities around the globe. And so we started it off in South Africa. And uh, after a period of time, he says, you know, what do you want to teach with us? Uh, so I said, khair, inshallah, challenge, opportunity. And so, alhamdulillah, it's been over 10 years now that I've been teaching with the Al-Kothar Institute. And via the Al-Kothar Institute, uh, that has incubated many other projects and given birth to many other projects. So, alhamdulillah, something close to our heart uh, that we run in South Africa is called the Imam Development Project. So, when we would have these Al-Kothar courses, we would send out invites to mashayikh and imams and all of these people, inviting them as guests to the course, don't pay anything. Very few would attend. Sometimes it's due to pride. A person wouldn't learn because of pride. I mean, I'm a graduate of this Darulum or that uh, seminary. Oh, I come and sit there as a student. So sometimes a person will be prevented from learning because of his pride. Another time, maybe because of... Uh, He's got a program on now. He's got a nikah. If he does the nikah, he might get a small envelope, you know, with some money in it. He doesn't have a vehicle to get to the course. So you have all of these issues. Dealing with also the baggage of apartheid. The reality is the Indian Maulana, his salary would be much higher than the African black Maulana who graduated with the Indian from the same seminary, from the same Darul Ulum. But because of his skin color, you know, he gets a much less of a salary. 
Many a times you find the Imam, he's uh, Imam. He doesn't even have the six books of Ahadith. Doesn't have a decent tafsir. He doesn't know what's Maktab Shamila. He doesn't know what he, he doesn't even know what's out there in terms of knowledge, durus, all of this here. So we would invite, uh, very few would attend. And uh, once we did a course, summarized course for a dawah organization, they had brought together all of their various imams from the rural areas and the city. And we did these courses for them. And we saw that, subhanAllah, many of them, unfortunately, besides everything else, don't even have the adequate amount of knowledge to deal with whatever they're dealing. Sometimes you find the Mawlana in the city, he's dealing with less complicated issues than the Sheikh who's in the rural area. The Sheikh in the rural area, you got issues of uh, Ahl al-Kitab slaughter. They don't have enough of proper halal food uh, slaughtered by a Muslim. They don't have access to that. So there's the whole Ahl al-Kitab and permissible and impermissible and conditions and all of that. You have this guy, he's come from overseas, he's married to a woman in his country, he's got children, there then he gets married to another woman here or this woman's pregnant out of wedlock issues and problems in the rural areas in the townships as it's called in the ghetto regions and so this guy if his knowledge is uh, uh, much less than even the Mawlana in the city how is he going to deal with all of this here so mashakil and so we saw that with these imams mushkila major major mashakil major problems so how do we benefit them how do we uh, you know, get them into these courses, benefit them. So we came up with uh, the Imam Development Project where we offer working Imams. So the Imam must be working somewhere. He must have a realm of influence. He's already teaching adult classes and Jumu'ah and he's got 500 people on the day of Friday and he's a Hafiz of Quran, etc., etc. He's got a strong realm of influence. Excellent. What's his salary? Unfortunately, sometimes the salary is $100 a month. $150 a month. So we came up with a package where we offer working imams this top-up package. $5,000 for the year. $200 in your bank account every month. And then $2,600 in kind. Laptop, internet, computer, smartphone, clothing. All of these things that the imam says he needs but he can't afford. Book on the, the khutbas for the year by Sheikh Yawar Beg. I mean, it's an expensive book but it's gold. It's gold, 400, 500 rands. But the imam won't buy it. Because he needs to pay school fees for his daughter. He needs to worry about the medical bill, all of this here. So we provide all of this for him. Remove all of the excuses. So now, Imam, if you're still falling short, if you're still not reaching that level of Imam Plus, then the fault is not the money. The fault is not you don't have access to X, Y, Z. Rather, the fault is yourself. The fault is yourself. So to remove all of these excuses, well, alhamdulillah, we started the project in April 2014 with four imams. And uh, now we have just under 80 imams across five provinces of South Africa. You have Tablighi, Diobandi, Salafis, uh, uh, one or two Barelvis. So we got across the spectrum. Also, these imams getting together, paintball shooting and all of these funny things here, retreats and stuff like that. It builds tolerance between them. As opposed to me talking about the other from afar, now I have to speak to the other face to face. And so alhamdulillah, this is uh, a fantastic project that uh, eats up a lot of our time. MashaAllah, that sounds really inspiring. And uh, just a couple of thoughts from that. It's that you, you touched upon this. Rather than otherizing people from different groups or, or movements, just spending time together uh, relaxing or enjoying you know sports or paintball like you mentioned as well as studying together and going on that journey together I think that 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 really really helps help the whole ummah or those communities progress beyond some of the sectarian divides that, yeah. that we're speaking about before so you know may Allah bless you and increase you in your good work there I mean like, no, like one one example uh, every year the best imam for the year gets a completely paid with spending hajj trip and uh, this last Hajj, Alhamdulillah, was a bumper year, MashaAllah, all praise be to Allah. We took uh, eight Imams for Hajj. Imagine the position of this Imam in that community. Here's an Imam who's at the age of 40 plus, graduate of Idarul Ulum, never left the country ever, never been for Hajj or for Umrah. Now he goes for Hajj, SubhanAllah, he's Haji in that community, you know, he's, he's uh, prestige. It has been raised, mashallah. Last year, we had taken 20 imams for Umrah. And the year before, same story. So you got the Tablighi, the Diobandi. They've been together for 10 days. 10 days, all of them together. Uh, many of them first time leaving the country. 
this anything and everything our mandate anything that ups the level of the imam and the prestige of the imam and the position of the imam then that's part and parcel of our mandate alhamdulillah Barakallahu feek. And you touched upon the, the money side of things. It reminds me of Imam Abu Hanifa, you know, having his uh, sort of business and being able to sponsor other ulama or people training to be change makers in their community and having that financial stability. Now, from my experience working, being involved in the Muslim community in the UK, that financial stability is a problem. So what, would, what advice would you give in terms of... Um, dealing with that challenge in the UK or in contexts where imams are struggling for money or, or paid perhaps a lot less than the effort and time they're putting into their communities? Allahu musta'an, Shahid. I can give you with regards to South Africa. UK, not too familiar. Although, in these matters, the similarities are too numerous. South Africa, you have many, many Darul Ulums. Probably between 50 to 100 Darul Ulums. Alhamdulillah, they served their purpose during the day because uh, apartheid, difficult to leave the country, study overseas. And so you had students who would go to the Darul Ulum, study there for six years, mashallah. Uh, he's an imam now, he's Mawlana, lead his community, become the imam of the masjid. Uh, but today, you have each of these Darul Ulums taking out maybe 50, maybe 20, 30 graduates every year. So many graduates, where are they to go? Where are they to go? There's uh, oversupply and the demand is very, very few. So the question begs, O oh, Imam, O oh, Mawlana, O oh, Sheikh, O oh, graduate from the Dar Ulum, what are you bringing to the table? I'm a graduate. Khair, Baraka. What are you bringing to, to the table? Because you're a graduate, the next guy's a graduate, the other one finished in the Dar Ulum. What special are you bringing to the table? Also from that angle, the Imam needs to look at it from that angle. What makes me special? What makes me stand out from the crowd? What am I bringing to the table? Why should you, the Masjid, the Trust Board, this Islamic school, give preference to me over the other 500, 700, etc., etc.? So that's one thing, one point from the angle of the imams themselves that they should bear in mind. The market, the job market, it is very, very tough. Very, very tough. And unfortunately, unfortunately, and this we're dealing with this across the globe, that unfortunately, many who are unable to make it in school, unable to uh, go to university, then they were put into the Dar ulum. They were put into the Islamic seminary. They were put into the Jamia, etc. Fast forward from there, you have you had the delinquent at times. You had the delinquent, the one who was uh, giving problems left, right, and center. He was the one sent to the Darulum. Fast forward 15 years later, he's Mawlana and he's in charge of the masjid. Mushkila. But rather, where was the you know the top student? Where were the the A plus students? They were sent to become doctors and lawyers and this and that etc. So there's there's this whole baggage of like uh, you know two hundred years or three hundred years that we're also dealing with. Allah From the other angle, they say that if you pay peanuts, you will get monkeys. You pay peanuts, you will get monkeys. And uh, many communities in the West, well, alhamdulillah, they've matured themselves, especially especially in the States, from what we read, I've not visited or anything, but from what we read and stuff, the job description and what they're looking for in an imam and what they're willing to pay also, you know, meets that standards, well, alhamdulillah. Uh, so very, very important that imam there, he is, he is the glue that binds that entire community together. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant people the understanding Amen. that Amen. many a times it's just you lead the five daily prayers mm. or maybe it's an imported imam from another country mm. doesn't even speak the language of the people Allah mustan mushkila South Africa many a times it's the cheapest imam that you can find mm. the cheapest imam and the imam knows himself that if he's fired they will find somebody cheaper than him mm. somebody from one of the neighboring countries who is in a desperate situation so Allah Musta'an, it's a it's a very tough one. 
Yes, especially in terms of the, the demands of an imam in today's society. And in my own life, uh, I'm taking a course in counseling methods or uh, on my way to becoming a, a practicing counselor at some point, inshallah. And I initially thought that given the the vibe around counseling and mental health, that I would probably be one of only a few brothers attending. Mm. But alhamdulillah, I, uh, I arrived and there were one or two imams Mashallah. that were there picking up uh, th these skills and wanting to go on 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 this journey so they can embed those counseling skills into their roles as imams. Sure, so. yeah. like, like these imams mm. now, you know, they would stand out from the crowd. That's mm. like an imam plus, mashallah. He's even worried about his own development. Mm. He wants to develop himself, mashallah. Alhamdulillah. This just today, uh, we have about seven imams in a province called Impumalanga. So they messaged that uh, each imam gets a laptop. But some of them are not really used to using a laptop. They're not so tech savvy and stuff. I mean, even a laptop, but you know, they, they, they're unable to use it. And so Alhamdulillah, each one of them signed up for a three-month course on uh, how to familiarize themselves with the laptop. That shows initiative from their side. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Well, Barakallahu feek, Sheikh. I've uh, had some really interesting insights from yourself. But there's one thing that I can't ignore, mm. and uh, that's your headgear. So this beautiful hat that you're wearing, I'm going to take a guess and say it's something to do with uh, a Turkish drama that's quite popular nowadays, uh, Ertuğrul. Tell me, do you watch it? Uh, yeah, so I finished uh, season three and I've taken a break now. Subhanallah. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I finished season three. And so I've taken a break. How did it start? Uh... Um, I said to my wife, you know, Netflix, this looks like something good. You know, maybe you should watch this instead of watching anything else. So she started watching and then I started watching. And then, yeah, subhanallah, I mean, you can't stop watching. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jayid, even though, as it said, there's only like 5% fact <laughs> with regards to the whole series. And it's like 95% drama. But it's good drama. Mm -hmm. It's good drama, mashallah, Jayid. Uh, look at the message of tawakkul in that series. It's always Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make a way out for us. Those who rely upon him, Allah will make it easy for them. The victory is not ours. Rather, the victory belongs to Allah. Allah, Allah. It's always, you know, the message with regards to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, the respect. Uh, as some have said that that series, for some people, it's done more for them than maybe a thousand bayans. For some people, it's done more for them and then maybe a thousand bayans, giving them a sense of pride, being Muslim, uh, you know, uh, being proud of your identity as a Muslim, alhamdulillah. Also the other side of the munafiqeen and the hypocrites, that how they destroy us from within. We found that uh, in season one, it was uh, Suleiman Shah's uh, brother. We also had Ural in season three and stuff. Those who were always, always stabbing the Muslims from behind. Allah Musta'an. Look at what has happened to uh, the, uh, the freedom fighters in Syria. Unfortunately, different factions, different groups, and how they busy engage with fighting one another. Allah Musta'an. Or when one is facing the enemy, then you're brother comes and stabs you from the back and how these munafiqeen are worse than the open enemy out there Allah so the messages in that series many many excellent fantastic good messages i was reading an article somebody says that uh, how this series has made me a better muslim uh, ordinary Muslim out there, we're not talking about the tulabul ilm, we're not talking about the ulama and this one and that one. We say to even the person that, uh, you know, if you haven't watched it and you don't waste your time in other nonsense, maybe it's not for you. You know, you, you well, alhamdulillah, you look after your time and stuff like this, you don't waste a lot of time. Excellent. I wouldn't advise you to start watching this here because it's going to eat up a lot of time. But if you already waste your time in other nonsense, which is million times worse than this, then this is the better alternative for you. Alhamdulillah. That, uh, so somebody puts an article together, you know, why and how this series has made me a better Muslim. It's also something that, uh, uh, as many have said, it's propaganda. Well, maybe it's the time that we had some good propaganda. There's no, it's it's Turkish propaganda and the Turkey Turkish government. They also fund it, and uh, you know they're trying to push the message of Ottomanism and stuff. So what? So what? We 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 need some good propaganda. Well, alhamdulillah, it's high time that we had some good propaganda, uh, portraying the Muslims in a positive light, portraying the Muslim man in a positive light. 
from Hollywood and Bollywood and whatever. The Muslim man is somebody seen as, you know, evil and terrorist and da da all of that. And the Muslim woman is somebody that always needs to be this uh, damsel in distress and she needs to be rescued. Whereas, subhanAllah, look at the strong personalities, uh, Erturul's mother. She's like the glue that binds the Kai tribe together. And the message is whenever he's in trouble and he's got issues, like he goes to his mother and, you know, Allah will make a way out. If you have tawakkul on Allah, if you stick to your principles, and we saw that in season one, Erturul was very principled. And his brother was, uh, was very pragmatic. You know, but times are tough, we can make a way here, you know, bend the rules a little bit, darura, situation, etc. Whereas Erturul, no way, I will not bend any rule, uh, very principled, mashallah. So, ala kulli hal, yes, I enjoy it, <laughs> I like it, and uh, those who waste a lot of their time, I would advise you to watch it. Hayakallah. SubhanAllah, I have a confession to make. Uh, I had to take a break midway through season two as it was very slowly taking over my life. Uh, but having heard what you've said and a few spoilers, I might have to, uh, if okay. I find some free time. And, and your, favorite, your favorite episode was? Um, to, uh, to be honest, um, when Kordolu sort of uh, was... was well done when he, he met, yeah, when he met his end, uh, um, that was a bit of... Uh, relief. Relief from my okay. side. But... Um, what I would like to say is that just to reiterate on your point, it's so important that Muslims watching television or, or movies that they have positive role models that are Muslim. I've seen the confidence it gives people, yeah, even yeah, in myself, yeah. uh, with things like the Omar series or yes, Erturul. Yes, yes. It makes and it there's a, also a the Imam effect. Ahmed. There's a fantastic one done on Imam Ahmed, uh, made in Qatar. I'm not sure if it's been sub, uh, if the, the subtitles mm. in English are released as yet, but it's also a fantastic one mm. on the life of Imam Ahmed. Rahimahullah. I'll have to check that out. But, um, My best episode was, I think it's episode 70 something, when they took over the Knights Templars Castle. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that, yeah. was, that was excellent. Epic. Masha, that was epic, subhanAllah. I agree. So, this whole Ottoman era. It's a very big part of our history, and I know you are a man of history. I've studied history with you in the past, uh, albeit with the Umayyads, but the Ottomans ruled for many hundreds of years. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the, the, the great moments of, the, of that history, of that period, and also some of the challenges and the lessons that we can learn today from, from that time. In a nutshell, so the series, the Erturul series, who's Erturul? Erturul is the father of Uthman. And Uthman is the founder of the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman comes from Uthman in Arabic, so we would say Dola uh, Uthmaniya. But because of pronunciation, maybe with the Turks and stuff like this, from Uthman, it became Uthman, Ottoman, etc. Uh, so it's Uthman's dream. This, in fact, there's a fantastic book called Uthman's Dream, the dream he had about this Dola, about this uh, state. And subhanAllah, they ruled over the Muslim lands for like uh, 600 years, 600 years, uh, less than 100 years ago, less than 100 years ago, that's when eventually the caliphate was was put to sleep, Allah Mustan. And uh, there were the good times, the bad times, the ugly times, the fantastic times, human history. Just like we had learned in the Umayyads, you had fantastic times, you had disasters, dark days. What we do many a times is, because of the tough times that we are experiencing today, then we romanticize the past. Mm -hmm. The past was all glorious and fantastic. and all. No, no, no. You had some great, fantastic people People that we look up to who did some very, very bad stuff. And you had some very bad people. You had some crazy people who did some very good stuff. You had uh, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf during the Umayyad period. He was a Quran teacher turned ruthless general. But he's also one who was a hafiz of the Quran and, you know, uh, had such ta'zim for the noble Quran and such respect, etc. You had some bad people who did good things and good people who did some bad things. During the Ottoman period, you had some of the rulers who, when they would take over, this was like standard procedure. You even have some fatawa which allowed it, that gave permission as the lesser of two evils to prevent dissent later on. You had many rulers, once they would take over, all their brothers, all their brothers would be put to an end. Uh, send them to Jannah early. Right? All their brothers would be finished off. Why? So that no brother stands up later and wants to take over. Mm -hmm. So to put an end to that, 
And some of them argued from the point that this is the lesser of two evils. Because if we allow the brothers to love, then maybe there's a chance they will rebel and there will be a splitting of the kingdom and the empire, etc., etc. Look at the masajid, those who have been to Turkey, subhanAllah. Uh, Anas radiallahu ta'ala and other of the Sahaba, they would give preference, you've got two masjids, give preference to the masjid which is Atiq. Atiq meaning the older of the masajid. When you go to Turkey and you stand in those old masajid, mashallah, you know, you feel uh, a, a better sense of khushu, you feel a better sense of like humility. Mm. You know, these majestic masajid, subhanAllah, mashallah, Jayid. Uh, so very, very rich in history, uh, the Ottoman Empire and unfortunately how it ended. Mm -hmm. There's that uh, clip that went viral that I'm sure your listeners and your viewers have seen. The clip about Sultan Abdul Hamid, mm -hmm. one of the last great uh, caliphs of the uh, Ottoman Empire. And as we said, there's the good days, the bad days, and the sad days. They were all human beings. Somebody would say, oh, but Sultan Abdul Hamid did X, Y, Z. We're not talking about that right now. There's that incident uh, where it states that uh, this person came and he says, you know what, uh, you owe me this money. And well, what were you talking about? Uh, Sultan said, what were you talking about? He says, well, I dreamt the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam last night that... Uh, uh, he said to me in a dream that go to the Sultan and say to him that he makes a certain dhikr every night and he fell short and he slept before finishing it and so, you know, he should pay you this amount of money. And so eventually the story goes that this guy told him, and Sultan were like shocked, I mean, I mean, you, nobody would know this, you know, it, I mean, how, how do you know this? You know, this is something, uh, something uh, supernatural here. And subhanAllah, eventually the Sultan pays him the money. And there's a very, very emotional clip. The Sultan is in tears. And I'm sure anybody who watches it, you know, would also be in tears. From another angle, a brother mentions, imagine if we were exposed to stuff like this. There's almost no one who watches that, except that you will be in tears. You know, your love for the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam, your ta'zim for him, your muhabba for him, your respect for him. How much different it would have been if we were brought up with like videos like this, images like this, content like this. You know, how maybe different it would have shaped our lives. And so maybe this, the Umar series and the uh, Irturul series, maybe this is the beginning, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala, for others to continue and uh, continue upon this path here, making very, very high quality, good content mm. for the Muslim market, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala, putting in these, these fantastic messages. Inshallah, you touched upon it. It's so important that we take the lessons and inspiration from the past without mm. over-romanticizing no, it no, no. and thinking it was a faraway dream that we can never return to in terms of the high points and, no, and no, things no. like that. So, Sheikh, we're coming to the end of uh, this podcast. Do you have any last words? Khair, inshallah, jazakallah khair, Dr. Adil. And uh, to infeed, may Allah increase you people, take you from strength mm. to strength. Jazakallah khair for the opportunity. We hope that we did justice to this. Uh, subhanallah, it's an amana in reality. If somebody is going to set aside an hour to listen to this, uh, I mean, we obviously have to give them fawaid, there has to be some benefit. Uh, we hope, we gave some uh, uh, some of that, inshallah, and uh, it was beneficial to whoever is listening. Jazakumullah khairan to all of you. Barakallah fiqh. Barakallah fiqh, Sheikh. It was a real pleasure having you here with us today, and uh, hopefully we'll see you again in the future, inshallah. And uh, to all of those uh, listening and watching at home, we hope you've enjoyed the podcast, and uh, I'd encourage you to follow Ilmfeed on YouTube and subscribe to our Invid podcast on Android and iPhone. So, assalamu alaikum from me. Take care. Barakallahu feekum. Wa jazakumullahu khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.